This is Guns and Butter. So there's this tension between this messianic ideology of the one world hegemon and the reality which is built every day today, which is a world which is multipolar. And by consensus, the countries creating that alternative do agree on the crucial principle, which is their different paths to developments and each one gets to choose his own. Sovereignty is crucial. You do not interfere in the internal affairs of a country and relationship between those countries shall be ruled by international law. These are three principles which are absolutely, emphatically not acceptable to the Anglo-Zionists, and they consider them, and I would argue correctly so, as existential threat to their way of life. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Andrei Rayevsky, who blogs as the Saker. Today's show, Superpower Confrontation in Syria. It's not over. The Saker is an expert in military analysis, intelligence issues, Russian geopolitics, and traditional Christian orthodoxy. He worked as a military analyst in Europe until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. He returned to the United States and has been blogging since 2007 as the Saker. He is the author of The Essential Saker, From the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World, and his newest, The Essential Saker 2. Saker, welcome back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. On April 14th, the U.S., the U.K., and France launched a joint massive strike on Syria, justifying their actions with the alleged use of chemical weapons in Douma on April 7th. According to the Russian Defense Ministry, the Syrian Air Defense Forces shot down 71 of 103 missiles launched. The U.S. denies that missiles were intercepted. In any case, do we know what targets were actually hit in the U.S. missile strike on Syria? Uh, yeah, I think we do. Um, uh, what were hit were two buildings not far away from Damascus. Uh, there apparently were four, I think, airfields targeted and possibly one more building. I would need to look it up in Homs. So we have a pretty good idea of, uh, of what was targeted, yes. Um, I think I have to say the following thing here. We have to completely separate facts from um, ideology or propaganda or politics. I mean, if we look at the consequences and, and the way this, this strike was conducted, we have to function on two planes which simply don't even intersect anymore. There is all the, um, the reality of what actually took place, which... First and foremost, needs to be said, from the for American point of view, this was, again, uh, basically a symbolic attack. Uh, if the Americans wanted to be serious about it, they would have gone about it in a different way. They would have totally constructed their entire operation in a different way. So it was, from the onset, deliberate that it would be symbolic. And it kind of makes sense, because the official um, theory was that they would destroy the uh, Syrian chemical uh, weapons production facilities, which I think anybody with a little bit of, of critical uh, thinking understands doesn't exist. 
So when you set out to destroy something which doesn't exist, uh, you are almost 100%, well, I mean, you're guaranteed a success because after you destroy that which doesn't exist, it does, still doesn't exist, therefore it's a stunning success. Um, Syrians do not have a sarin production facility. They do have uh, um, chlorine, which is used even in sewing pools, so this is not a chemical weapon. But if they had tried to strike um, a real military um, chemical warfare production um factory, the consequences on the ground would have been absolutely dramatic, just as was the case last year when they claimed that they bombed the airport where these chemical munitions, uh, which don't exist, were stored, and uh, you could see that the very next morning after the, the, um, the so-called successful strike, Russians were driving around in open jeeps and filming that airport. That would have been impossible if Saren had been, or VX, or something like that had been stored there. So there is, on one level, if you want a completely symbolic action, which was designed by the Americans to be symbolic. Then, of course, there was the failure of most of these um, missiles to reach the target, but I think the Americans could have predicted that. Because um, the Americans have a very good idea of how effective Syrian air defenses are. The Russians were not involved in that case. Well, it's just a matter of, of, uh, of, of um, basic math. For instance, if it takes one missile to shoot down one other missile, one anti-missile to shoot one down, and you know that I have two, well, just shoot three. You will lose your first two to my 100% effective two, and then your third one will hit. This is basic math, and the Americans could easily have done that. They could have saturated the Syrian defenses. They didn't. So from the onset, it was a deliberate symbolic strike, and if it is indeed true from the military point of view. It was pretty laughable. But I think the Americans knew that that would be the outcome. The claim that Assad would gas his own people doesn't make any logical sense. And a missile attack on a chemical factory or storage facility would poison thousands of people with toxic clouds, which you've just pointed out. You have written that facts and logic no longer matter. All that matters are perceptions. How do perceptions pertain to this latest U.S. missile attack on Syria? Well, we heard Donald Trump calling it the perfect strike. That's typical perceptions. Uh, we heard all sorts of, the kind of American triumphalism, you know, we're the best, we're number one, we have the best military, all that stuff is nonsense. Everybody who is in the know on military affairs knows that's in nonsense, but, you know, that's what's important. Uh, there are other things at work which are much more serious, for instance. It is a fact that if you strictly look what the Russians had said, the statement by uh, General Gerasimov, he said that if Russians were attacked, they would uh, shoot back and destroy the missiles and even the carriers. A lot of was made out of that statement. He never said that the Russians would defend all of Syria. Uh, they don't have the means actually to do it physically. I mean, they just have enough to cover themselves in the north in Khmeimin, Latakia, and uh, Tartus. So there never was an option of Russians, say, if the Americans had attacked downtown Damascus or, or made a more um, robust military attack on, on the Syrian military, the Russians had never said that they would actually respond and start uh, shooting at U.S. forces in that case. But the perception here again, never mind what the Russians actually said, the perception is, the Americans bombed a Russian ally again with impunity. That perception is very important. It does two things. It, first of all, puts pressure on the Russians to next time do something um, out again of the real world 
reality world and sort of make something significant in the symbolic perception world. It also, unfortunately, gives the U.S. side that sense of, we did a great job, look what we did. And uh, you can interpret what happened in two ways. You can't say, like some do, for instance, that the Americans blinked. I use that deliberately, that blinked thing, which is, which is stupid and, and reckless when we're talking about war between uh, you know, nuclear powers. But okay, let's use that kind of language and say, let's see which side blinked. Well, you can say that the Americans did it, because the Americans blinked because they bypassed the Russians completely. They chose a symbolic strike. Uh, they didn't have the, the, again, I'm using deliberately the wrong language here, the courage to engage from the Mediterranean, they did it from far away, the Red Sea, etc. So the Americans clearly show that they're afraid of the Russians. You can flip that completely around and say the Russians blinked. The Americans beat their ally up right in front of them, and they didn't do anything about it. For all the rhetoric, you know, they are just hot air and didn't take any action. So you see, you can flip that in, in this realm of, of ideology and propaganda. You can say anything you want, and that's mostly where this is headed, and that's what's scary about it. Because the more we go into that kind of discussion of, of, of political, like, like campaign talk, that's what it reminds me of, the more we're ignoring the, the really frightening realities on the ground. And I think that the, uh, what I want to mention too, first of all, what's taking place is a complete wholesale abandonment of the very principles of international law. I mean, the U.S. is, they like to use the word rogue state, that is the ultimate rogue state, well, with Israel, the two of them. They basically overtly, with no shame, in your face, violate every single rule of international law and, and tell the rest of the planet basically what you're going to do about it. That kind of thuggery is frightening because it's, it's, it basically pushes towards the law of the jungle. And if it were to be successful, it would be world hegemony, but it's not going to be successful. So that pushes basically the world to people forcing them to fight back militarily. I mean, the purpose of law is not justice, is to manage conflict. That's why the UN Security Council was created. That's why the UN was created. That's the main function, is to avoid wars. By trampling completely upon the UN Charter and in international law, the Americans are basically saying war is the way international relations are going to be um, fought. That's the first problem. The second problem is for every one of those, even symbolic operations, that the Americans get away with, it brings us closer to less symbolic operations. There are rumors that some say Trump, some say Pompeo would wanted to actually strike Iranian and even Russian targets in Syria. And the official version now is that James Mattis uh, said no. So we have a mad dog calming out the even madder, even crazier people there. That's truly frightening. If if James Mattis is the you know the current symbol for restraint and and and. Uh, and rationality, God help us all. And these are the real dangers of what's coming out of the situation. Not the, you know, the size of the clouds or of non-existing chemical weapons facilities. All of that is just pure nonsense. Like the Skripal case, it's another case of absolute, cheap, poorly orchestrated false flags. Again, the problem is the consequences. You just brought up the United Nations. The recent Russian-sponsored resolution at the UN Security Council to have the UN endorse the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, uh, investigation of the April 7th Duma incident did not receive UN approval. It was blocked by the US and its allies. Even without a UN endorsement, the OPCW investigation into the incident will move forward. 
Significantly, the attacks occurred before the OPCW could examine the alleged chemical weapons crime scene. Have the missile attacks obliterated the so-called crime scene? No, not really, because my understanding is that the main place to investigate um, that so-called chemical attack would have been the hospital, where the non-existing patients were supposed to be treated. But the Russians got there even before they they investigated the place. I mean, um, the Americans did not strike that hospital. So it's not an attempt to literally uh, do the same thing as they did with the Skripal animals, which is to incinerate them in order to, uh, you know, basically tamper with evidence uh, and conduct uh, obstruction of justice at a grand scale. However, again, you're asking the question about reality, and I'll push you back to the world of illusion. What it, this really means is that the United States is sending a message to the OPWC, which is, you don't matter, we don't care about you, you can even send your investigators there, screw you, we're going to do whatever the hell we want without even waiting for results. That is a powerful message. It's not so much concealing um, what was done, because frankly, even if the if they had found nothing, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So... You know, you could always claim, well, they didn't find it because their methodology was not good or because whatever. You can find a number of reasons to explain that away. The main thing was to show um, basically not the United Nations Security Council, most definitely not Russia, as I think uh, Pompeo said himself, not even the, the OPWC. Nobody has a veto rights over what we do. That's the key thing. The key message the United States is sending to the entire plant is none of you, all of you have to obey accept, kneel, bow before us, and we do whatever the hell we want. Even if it's done symbolically, the message is accepted and the world behaves accordingly. I mean, the United Nations Security Council refused to condemn strikes which were uh, executed in violation of the very authority of that UN Security Council. That is, Sanaman to a judge refusing to um, take action against somebody who's guilty of contempt of courts. I mean, that's where we are. They're taking it. Uh, same way the Western democracies are taking the fact that uh, illegal wars are engaged in without, you know, consultation with uh, uh, parliaments. That's ignored. It's all basically a wholesale dismantling of every single principle of, of law, uh, national law and international law. And that's extremely important. I'm speaking with author and military analyst, The Saker. Today's show superpower confrontation in Syria. It's not over. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Didn't Russia announce that they had discovered preparations underway for the staging of some kind of a false flag chemical attack in Syria to try and set up the Syrian government? What did the Russians say they had discovered? They had discovered, yes, they did. Uh, they said that they knew that the White Helmets were involved, that they're bringing in uh, the equipment. What happened was, most likely, is that they were not... Ex- okay, let's backtrack here. I think the Americans did not expect uh, the Russians and the Syrians to win militarily so rapidly in Ghouta and Duma. And what happened was, the, the preparation was for more convincing, actually, with use of chemical weapons, attack there in order to trigger an intervention which would save the good terrorists. The problem is that the Syrians were too fast, they didn't have the time to engage in that, and therefore they had to botch it. So what they actually did, they didn't actually use chemical munitions and then make a 
real false flag. They actually invented the event based on a single video made inside the hospital, and that was good enough for that. So again, you could you could you could make fun of of, of uh, and it seems to be that the people behind that were the British. That's what the Russians are saying now, the British special services. Now you can make fun of them and saying, well, they botched the job, but I would say, so what? The fact that uh, the Russians announced it ahead, even Nikki Haley announced that before even in the United Nations Security Council, she said it. She said, if the Syrians use chemical munitions and the Security Council does not authorize, you know, some kind of action, then we'll do it on our own. She, she told it straight to the face of the Security Council members. So it was announced. It's all completely clear. But here's the beauty of it in, 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 a, in, a, you know, in, a, in an evil sense. In spite of that... They still went ahead and did it, and nobody, in the, or almost nobody, had anything to object about it. So that's a statement of power. The fact that their pretext is so poorly crafted actually, in a way, makes it stronger, because their case is so laughable, like the Skripal, uh, you know, doorknob, buckwheat, uh, delivery through air vents, and even through drones, etc. They had all sorts of, you know, they would never recover. Turns out they both recovered. The animals didn't die. I mean, all of it is laughable. It would be a bad, bad book. But yet they acted on it. The fact that the Anglo-Zionist hegemony gets to use that kind of bad pretexts and gets away with it is a statement of its true power, politically speaking. And... Who are the white helmets? They're just basically uh, the Western uh, special services have all sorts of. They always had, you know, uh, subsidiaries that operated under a different name. It could be National Endowment for Democracy. It could be, you know, Radio Liberty in Europe. They are just the latest um, version. Basically, they are local um, good terrorists who just uh, make videos and provide false flag uh, footage for the Western media. That's basically what they are. They are financed by the Anglo powers, and their role is just to do that, basically, for false flagging. You have written that the commander of CENTCOM was quoted as having said, quote, we will do what we are told, end quote. So then, if the U.S. military is doing what they are told, who do you think is calling the shots in this missile attack on Syria? That's a very complicated question. Um, I asked two friends of mine who are very well informed. I asked them, do they think that there's a general up there in the you know National Security Council, White House, Pentagon, and that level, the Joint Chiefs, who would have the courage of the kind of people, uh, Fallon or uh, Mike Mullen, you know, who would say no? They were in the opinion that no, there is nobody. Now, the official rumor says that Mattis opposed it. Maybe. I don't know what happened. I don't think anybody, I mean, some people know, but I certainly don't know what happened really behind closed doors. In theory, the military has to say we will do whatever we're ordered. I mean, that is one of the principles of democracy is that the military doesn't act on its own, but in the service of the legal elected government. But in reality, we all know that it's not that simple. Uh, they have a lot of power, actually. Um, if they take a united stance and say, don't do that, the president, particularly an extremely weak one like um, Trump, can't do much. So it leaves, you know, nutcases like um, Bolton, like Pompeo. These guys are truly crazy. And I think it is plausible. I'm not saying this is what happened, but it is plausible that Mattis and others 
in uniform just told them, guys, you're nuts and we're not going to do that kind of stuff. And officially, you know, it's a call to debate. But it could be also the basically American generals doing the right thing and being responsible. But how long can they do that? That I don't know. Vladimir Putin threatened severe consequences for escalation of U.S. aggression in Syria. So far, the only reaction from Russia has been verbal. In your article, Alas, It's Far From Over, you examine three possible avenues of response available to Russia, political, economic, and military. What dilemma does Russia face when deciding how to fight back against U.S. aggression in Syria. Okay, let's look at each one of them in, in, um, in order. Political, what does that mean? Basically, denouncing the United States as a rogue state, violator of international law um, that bases its actions on grotesquely um, non-credible false flags, attacks sovereign nations, etc. The Russians have been doing that. The point is nobody cares. Nobody cares. That's... That's ineffective. I mean, appealing to decency, common sense, logic, uh, you know, values of Western civilization, all that, nobody cares. It's the same civilization who has Guantanamo still open, you know, it's the same that basically uses lies, you know, all the form of lies that we heard, all the, we have a culture of, of lies and indifference to the truth right now, in which Russian protests make no sense. So you have little countries like Bolivia who can agree with Russia. Even China is kind of taking a zigzagging, very low-key position. So-called Russian allies like Belarus and Kazakhstan have nothing to say. I mean, the Russians are kind of on their own, not really, but they're, you know, very isolated. And they're not going to achieve anything by just protesting. So the next thing would be economic retaliation. Russia is too small, too isolated. She doesn't have the means to do that. The key actor here that could have and still could actually become important as China. But China has decided to wait it out and let the Russians deal with the problem on their own. So economically, Russia can't do much. Um, plus, uh, the U.S. administration is pushing towards severing ties between Russia and the West anyways. So, you know, some people say, well, let's stop selling energy to, to the Europeans. Let's see what happens, how they're going to like it. Well, I think the people might not like it, but the leaders of countries such as Poland or the Baltics or the American leaders are going to love it. They've been pressing for it. They want North Stream 2 to be stopped. So Russian sanctions somewhere are exactly what the U.S. is doing anyway. So is that really a deterrent to, to uh, U.S. actions? I don't think so. Which leaves us with the last. The last is military action. Now here, Russia has a double problem. Is that, first of all, the United States does not have credible boots on the ground in uh, the Middle East. Okay, If you look at U.S. allies there, uh, they're basically Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia. Those two countries excel at two things, shooting civilians and um, buying very expensive high-tech gear. That is not sufficient to be a credible force on the ground. And when these two countries were engaged on the ground, I think of Israel and, and, and Lebanon, or the um, Saudis in Yemen, they actually showed pitiful performance. So the U.S. tried to make some kind of base for themselves with the Kurds. That didn't work either. The Iraqis stopped the first one and, and uh, Turks stopped the second one. So the problem is, is that Russia really could, if Russia intervened more heavily and start taking military, uh, you know, retaliatory action against the U.S. or our forces allied with the United States, 
very rapidly the U.S. would have either need to attack Russia and Russia territory proper because the Russian force in Syria is too small. And secondly, not having boots on the ground and not being a credible conventional force pushes a country in a situation of weakness like the U.S. is towards using nuclear weapons. So what, you're, what we're really saying is if Russians use military means to actually extract a price from the U.S., making them pay, say by attacking a U.S. base or sinking or even striking some kind of ship, Russia would be risking nuclear war with the United States. Is that responsible? I don't think so. That's Russia's dilemma. She doesn't have a good option. What do you think was the goal of the Anglo-Zionist attack on Syria? Well, it's a combination, as always with the U.S. It's not a single goal. It's a combination of things. Um, the bigger picture, really, well, first of all, is to kind of stay in Syria because Trump had made that silly statement, silly uh, from his point of view, that they're going to get out. And he was immediately corrected by his quote-unquote advisors. That's a way of proving that we're staying there. No, no, no. I was, you know, misunderstood, or like W said, misunderestimated, and we're staying. So that's the tactical local thing, to show that we will spoil and try to make you pay for your successes in uh, creating a conference on Syria and, and, and the trilateral Astana agreement, etc. I mean, there's a local component to it, but there's a bigger one. The bigger one is to prove to the world that the U.S. still is the world hegemon. And uh, Trump began that with a DPRK, threatened all sorts of things. We had this ridiculous talk about my red button is bigger than yours. And it all ended up in an embarrassment. So what they did, they quickly covered it up, forgot about it, sort of almost as if it never happened, even though he did threaten them with a formidable armada. And, you know, remember those articles about U.S. special forces taking out the, the North Korean leadership and, you know, the disarming nuclear strikes, all that nonsense. It's all gone now. Basically, the, the North Koreans managed to stare down the U.S., and the U.S. couldn't do it because the local allies of the U.S., Japan and um, South Korea, were horrified by this prospect. So right now, they're looking desperately for a sign of manhood and still capability for world hegemony. So that's why we saw Trump go on TV and has this... He, he looked, it's called in the U.S., he doesn't look like a nutcase, it's called looking presidential. When you come out and say, well, we decided to take action and order our magnificent armed forces to blah, 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 blah. That is what sells, that gives that impunity, image of impunity and arrogance, which is now considered presidential in the United States. That, I think, is the far more important goal. Third, humiliate Russia, because Russia right now is standing up to the United States and... There is a need to make the Russians look as weak as possible, particularly when they objectively are not that weak and actually in many ways are stronger than the U.S. So there's, again, remember I said the two planes, the reality plane and the, and the, and the ideology delusional plane were functioning very much in that other non-reality based plane. That's where that had a major impact. What strategic or national interest does the United States actually have in busting up Syria? Well, to the extent that via the neocons, uh, the United States is basically Israel's pit bull, um, this asking the wrong question. The real question is, how does Israel want to use the United States for its own goals in Syria? And then it's absolutely clear what's going on. Uh, what's going on is that uh, basically, you remember General uh, what's his name? Clark predicted a number of countries would engage. It's to remove a secular, pluralistic, uh, and fairly effective functional uh, system by 
ideally putting the the crazies in power there they you know the 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 bad or good terrorist doesn't matter thereby justifying israeli action first they want chaos around themselves to be comparatively stronger secondly they want a pretext to uh, intervene uh, outside their borders and third very very importantly they want muslims to kill each other so the idea is to unleash the wahhabi crazies against their most important enemy which is hezbollah in lebanon and iran really the real action is always around iran in the middle east between iran and israel so the U.S. now having become basically a, a host for the for, for the Zionist parasite that's sitting on top now is basically used as a pit bull to do that on behalf of the Israelis because they don't have the means to do that. And um, the United States by themselves, uh, it's actually extremely counterproductive. They are allied with the wrong people. They're, they're making themselves irrelevant. I mean, think of the move. Uh, of a recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I mean, there, there couldn't be possibly be worse PR in the Middle East or the Arab Muslim world, and they did it. So I don't think the United States is pursuing any kind of national uh, interest. And as a matter of fact, I don't think the United States has much of a foreign policy at all, other than the insistence that we're the world hegemon and everybody has to bow to the U.S. I think that's the only sort of, you know, the exceptionalism. That's about the only thing. Messianic exceptionalism, that is the idea, nothing else. I'm speaking with author and military analyst, The Saker. Today's show, Superpower Confrontation in Syria. It's not over. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You mentioned General Wesley Clark and his speech about having been told by the Pentagon of a plan to take down seven countries in five years. Is the taking down of Bashar al-Assad and the nation-state of Syria consistent with the Oded Yunon plan for the greater Israel? Yeah, of, of course it is. Okay, there's two countries left which are really a problem for Israel, which was Syria and Iran. They don't have what it takes to, uh, to take on Iran. They really don't, certainly not by themselves. And Syria is closer. And Syria is also, um, if you want, the, the rear base for Hezbollah in many ways. So they're, they're going step by step, and the, and the front line would be Syria. And basically, the, the way the British Empire used the Gorkas, the Israelis are using the U.S. to basically as shock troops to go forward. And the problem is that these, unlike the Gorkas, the U.S. is not very effective at doing that. I mean, they failed. In Syria, they failed. They failed because of the action of a really tiny Russian contingent, and the Iranians also on the ground made a big difference, as did Hezbollah. These are troops on the ground that can actually fight. And... The, the U.S. and Israel don't have the equivalent. That's their dilemma. That's why they're so frustrated. That's why they have to resort to symbolic strikes and rhetoric, because they really don't have the means to intervene in Syria and really uh, reverse the course of the, the war there and um, make it possible for the good and bad terrorists to completely eliminate uh, the government of Syria. Do you think that getting away with this strike with no repercussions so far will encourage more aggression? Yes, I do. Russian reinforcements, warships laden with tanks, military trucks, and armored patrol boats have been spotted cruising in the Bosphorus Straits en route to Syria. So Russia has something in mind in Syria. Yes, um, Russia has a couple of things in mind. First of all, to try to protect its tiny force as best can be. Remember, that force is pretty far away from Russia, actually. Russia is not at all 
comparable to the U.S. military. Russian projection capabilities are nowhere near what the U.S. has. So for the Russians, it's a massive uh, logistical undertaking to even uh, deploy a task force there and then to protect it as best can be. But I think the more important part is there's a second level, which is to strengthen the Syrians. And that is the correct response, actually, to everything that's going on. Um, it appears that the Syrians actually did a pretty good job with their defenses, admittedly against a fairly symbolic strike. But basically, if one side can escalate, so can the other. What the Syrians now desperately need is more modern um, air defense systems, particularly um, the short-range uh, combined missile and gun systems that are ideal against cruise missiles. Everybody speaks always about the S-400s, and uh, the, they are very impressive systems, but shooting down cruise missiles is not their primary task. It's not what they're best at. There's a different system, which is less known, called Panzer, is extremely effective, road mobile, impossible to predict where it is, and it has a formidable capability against cruise missiles. And since cruise missiles are the prime weapon that the Anglo-Zionists can and will and have been using against the Syrians, the Russians need to flood that place with those kind of systems. That is the correct response. And then this, the second thing is the Syrians need to defend themselves. And why, um, even if there are some Syrians who would look like Russians, be Slavs, and speak Russian inside the, the actual air defense system, like, you know, the Russians were a part of the war in Korea, for instance, it has to be officially the systems in order to not escalate. Uh, if you have plausible deniability, you fight by means of proxy. If both sides even know, but you still have that, you know, fig leaf of it's not the Russians who are shooting back as the Syrians, then the punishment meted out against them will be against the Syrians and not against the Russians. And the point here is not to preserve Russian lives and say Syrians are expendable. But the point is, is to, to avoid a direct escalation between both sides, which would lead to nuclear war. And during the Cold War, both the Russians and the Americans understood these unwritten rules of the game perfectly. So the key for the Russians right now in Syria is to, as fast as possible, strengthen the Syrians, particularly their air defenses. That is the single most important task. And they hinted pretty heavily at that uh, during the press conference following the strikes. Um, they actually said that we were asked by our allies not to provide S-300s uh, to Syria. We will now reconsider that decision. Well, you know, S-300s, yes, they would be useful. They, they, they complement very nicely the, um, the Panzer system. But the key thing, I still think, is the Panzer. From the onset, I said, everybody focus on those very long-range systems. Don't. It's the anti-cruise missile system, the Panzer, which is the most important. And I think the Russians will be trying to bring as many of them as, as fast as possible in there, train the Syrians as fast as can be, and if that's not doable, then actually put some Syrian uniforms on Russian crews and deploy them, because that's what's going to decide militarily the next step in Syria. Well, you've already begun to answer this, but what can you tell us about the new Russian weapons system? Vladimir Putin said that they have new weapons that are formidable. Yes, but they have, they have very little bearing on the conflict in Syria right now. Putin's key um, message really was that uh, it was to basically officially announce the death of American anti-ballistic uh, missile programs. Uh, the deployment of ABM capabilities in Europe, all this idea about putting capabilities in, in Alaska, etc. I mean, the, the message was is that mutual assured destruction, MAD, uh, still holds in spite of your billions and trillions spent on, on, uh, on bypassing it. Because what happened really was the U.S. wanted to 
protect themselves from a retaliatory counterstrike. So what Putin proved to the U.S. is first, we can hit you. We can hit you conventionally, we can hit you anywhere in the United States, and you don't have the military capabilities to stop that. The second was sort of a subcomponent in one specific system to say your, your surface fleet worldwide is essentially attackable and there's nothing you can do about protecting your aircraft carriers. That, that's in the case of one specific weapon system he mentioned, the Kinjal. Uh, that does not directly impact the Middle Eastern um, theater of operations, at least not in the initial stages. It does if you escalate. Um, again, the nightmare scenario is that, say, Bolton prevails and the next time around um, Russians die and Russians decide to, say, shoot back at either an American base in Syria, there are a couple of them, or a U.S. Navy ship. At which point the U.S. decides to seriously punish, as they would say, the Russian uh, task force in Syria, which is too small to withstand a CENTCOM plus NATO attack. So the help to them would be coming from Russia proper, in the form of, amongst other capabilities, one of these new systems. You could sort of see a recognition of that by the fact that American um, uh, guided missile cruisers in, in uh, the Mediterranean did not were not used during the latest strike. They hit from way further, the Persian Gulf and um, the Red Sea, which could be an indication that they were concerned that even if, as I think, they did indicate to the Russians what was happening, they still were afraid that, you know, you never know with these guys. So if we go for further escalation, these systems become relevant, the, the systems that Putin mentioned in, uh, in his speech on, uh, what is it, March 1st. But really, in terms of the Syrian conflict proper, it's not what he was speaking about. You have written that Russia is the only country on the planet, with the possible exception of Iran, which openly and unapologetically dares to denounce the empire's hypocrisy and which is willing to back her words with military power if needed. Where is China in all of this? Well, first of all, it was maybe a little unfair because there are countries... I want to mention Bolivia here. Uh, I had some... Um, commentators criticizing me for not mentioning uh, the Bolivian stance in, in the um, UN Security Council, and that's a fair criticism. I was wrong about that. The Bolivians did denounce. Unfortunately, they're far away, and they don't have anywhere near the military capabilities to, to do anything other than protest. Now, Iran, Russia, and China have three completely different situations. Um, Iran can back and has backed uh, her position with military means, but in a local sense, that is, the U.S. cannot beat down Iran. The Iranians are on the ground in Syria. They have taken losses, severe losses, including generals. They have suffered. They lost way more people than the Russians did. So they're backing the rhetoric with actual military action. But what they can't do is reach far enough. They can locally reach within the Middle East, yes. But they cannot lob a missile in downtown Omaha. The Russians can. That's the, that's the bigger difference. Other than that, I would say the Iranians have been almost outside the forefront. They're at least as, as outspoken and courageous as the Russians are. I mean, I, I admire what they're doing tremendously. I think it's tremendous courage, and, and I just wish other countries, you know, could follow their example. China is really a differing situation because their military used to be very, very antiquated. When I was studying um, the Chinese military compared to the two superpowers in the late 90s, we're always dismissing China as a huge military with 1950s capabilities. That's changing pretty fast. They're reducing in size. They're very rapidly improving capabilities. Uh, I think the Chinese have very real military capabilities. They could 
and already bring them to bear. No doubt in my mind. They're, they're not on par with Russia, not even close. And, and many key technologies, they're far behind. But they already have reached, mm, I would say, the, the, a threshold of military relevance. Let's put it this way, that they could take action. But their power is even different. Uh, their economic power is immense. And their psychological political capital is huge. Uh, my big frustration is I don't, I don't want the Chinese to help the Russians militarily. I don't think they could do much. Uh, they have a more of our capabilities in, in Asia, not in the Middle East. And the Russians really don't need that kind of help. But if psychologically China sided with Russia on a political level, on that first level we discussed, of in the United Nations Security Council, and clearly indicated to the West that Russia and China are one, that would have a tremendous political impact on public opinion. It is one thing to say we're going to take on the Bashar al-Assad regime, and punish him for, you know, killing its own people with chemical weapons. A totally different language to say, okay, we're taking on the entire Eurasian continent. That's a much harder sell and would trigger much more objections, even from people who are generally unaware of the risk of what's happening now. Because the, the key thing is this. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, everybody was discussing the risks. The news media was freaking out, and justly. Now nobody does. It's just like business as usual. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm based in Florida. I look at what's happening among adults here, or my daughter is in, in college and my two sons are in college. Nobody talks about anything. They don't, they're unaware of it. We're at the edge of a nuclear war. Not a word is said. Well, if China moved in politically, that would raise much higher up the level of awareness in the West of what's taking place. Unfortunately, to my great regret, they're still taking a pretty... Lame, wishy-washy. I mean, they, they, they say very good things. They write good articles. Recently, there was been another one a couple of days ago. Chinese Minister of Defense said some very important and good things, uh, which are basically noticed by U.S. analysts, but they already know that. The general public doesn't get to see it. And the U.N. Security Council, yeah, the China's, they repeat their usual pious statement about that we oppose any use of violence or threat of violence in violation of international law. Okay, that's good. But you still come across as pretty lame. That's not the kind of language that's going to get anybody's attention. That's what they could do, and that's what they're not doing. That's what I hope they will do if this thing escalates. I'm speaking with author and military analyst, The Saker. Today's show, Superpower Confrontation in Syria. It's not over. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How significant is the alliance between Turkey, Russia, and Iran? Extremely. Um, and that, that is part of the, the Anglo-Zionist problem, is that what Turkey, Russia, and Iran have in common is that they have real, meaningful military capabilities, i.e. boots on the ground, in Syria. Um, and they, the Russians did something which... Uh, the Americans thought it would be absolutely impossible, which is they, they, they put, not only did they put together the good terrorists and the government around a, a, a table for negotiations of the future of Syria, but they brought Iran and Turkey, which are not exactly friends, to jointly create a regional trilateral mechanism. And the real threat is, God forbid, peace would break out as a result of that. Because these three countries have declared themselves guarantors of a peace process in Syria. That could lead to potentially catastrophic results for Israel, 
I mean, what it means is basically peace in Syria, uh, some kind of new constitutional framework with local autonomy, no Kurdistans, uh, no uh, you know, Al-Qaeda types slashing throats and torturing people on TV, etc. It would actually be a, a, a normal, secular, pluralistic government backed by regional actors. Imagine the fury of the Saudis and the Israelis if that happens. And the point is, I think it is still most likely to, to happen. I don't think the Anglo-Zionists have the means to frustrate that anymore. So it's actually immensely relevant. You write that, quote, there cannot be a one-world hegemon and a multipolar world order regulated by international law. It's an either-or situation. And in that sense, this is all much bigger than Syria or even Russia. Yes, it's absolutely true. The U.S. project is very simple. We heard Mike Pompeo just say that we're exceptional and unique, I think was his word. And we heard, you remember Obama about the indispensable nation. Basically, what you have is an empire with a messianic ideology. I mean, there is a political consensus in the American political class with a few exceptions on the fringes. But the vast majority agree on the following idea. The U.S. gets to rule the world in any way the hell they want. Period. Nothing else, no, nothing stands in the way of that. That is a project which is impossible to achieve. They don't realize that because, and it's, it's always I feel uncomfortable when I say that because it, it sounds like, you know, insults are invectives and not diagnosis. But I think they're illiterate, ignorant, and stupid. Uh, and they don't realize that this is a, a complete uh, it's it's a myth. They will never achieve that. The world is too complex, too big, and their power is declining so fast. So there is this tension between this messianic ideology of the one world hegemon and the reality which is built every day today, which is a world which is multipolar. And by consensus, the countries creating that alternative do agree on the crucial principle, which is their different paths to developments, and each one gets to choose his own. Sovereignty is crucial. You do not interfere in the internal affairs of a country. And relationship between those countries shall be ruled by international law. These are three principles which are absolutely, emphatically not acceptable to the Anglo-Zionists. And they consider them, and I would argue correctly so, as existential threat to their way of life. That is true. It is. According to your analysis, then, one of the next moves uh, of the Anglo-Zionist empire could be on the Ukraine. Isn't that right? That is the most likely, but I would not discount Syria either. It's not over there either. We're having at least two fronts. And a third one, which we shouldn't forget either, is Iran. Uh, we have, you know, bona fide nutcases like Bolton there and Trump himself, and they're all, you know, promising uh, fire and brimstone against the Iranians and accusing them of God knows what. So we have at least three potential conflicts simmering already, ready to be unleashed at any time. Yes. I guess if they were going to move against Iran, the next step would be to invalidate the nuclear treaty with Iran, don't you think? Correct. Yes. And then how would they go about doing that? Well, that has to be renewed periodically anyway, doesn't it? Yep, but it would be extremely serious, simply. The Iranians have already clearly indicated that if the Americans move out, um, they've threatened to basically say, well, okay, after that, our... our our hands are free, and they might even... Now, there's some debate, because there's an argument to be made that the correct Iranian response could be to ignore that, 
particularly if Europe sticks to its obligation, that is to say the U.S. moved out, but UN, the Europeans stay in. And technically speaking, legally, only the U.N. Security Council could actually um, uh, invalidate that agreement. So there could be a possibility for the Iranians to say, well, if the Europeans truly do not yield to American pressure, we won't do anything about it. But they've also said that we will have the sovereign right to decide to do whatever we want. At that point, it's so easy. After Skripal, after the false attacks, the chemical false flags, just say the Iranians are developing nuclear weapons again. You don't need any kind of proof. You just say it's highly likely. Step one and say it's highly likely that the Iranians are developing nuclear weapons. And then all of the European chorus all together will go, we show solidarity. We show solidarity. And that's it. You've got all the ingredients to bomb Iran because they can't invade Iran. Um, same problem. They can't destroy a nuclear program that doesn't exist, but there's a lot of lucrative targets, civilian targets in Iran. You know, there are nuclear plants, civilian ones, there are research facilities, there's an industrial capabilities. There is a huge list of lucrative uh, targets which the Americans could hit inside Iran um, with the sole purpose of doing what, um, who was Baker's told to, uh, to the Iraqis, bomb you back to the Stone Age. That would be the concept. Or what the Israelis did uh, during the war against Lebanon. Basically destroy as much of the civilian infrastructure, kill as many civilians as possible, uh, destroy water, sanitation, electricity, destroy the, the civil society to make them pay for voting for the wrong people. That's what they did with Serbia over Kosovo. So this is a, a time-tested you know, Anglo-Zionist method, which is if you can't get their military or their leadership, just go after the civilians and make them pay. If you want, it's like uh, during the 19th century, you know, killing the Native Americans, can't get their scouts in the forest, no problem. We'll just torch their, 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 their villages. That's basically the same concept 21st century. That's what they would be going after. Um, how is it, in your opinion, that the Zionist lobby in the United States has so much power over foreign policy? Well, here's the deal. I'm not sure that the Israel lobby in the United States is primarily concerned with Israel. I really think that we're dealing with a group of people who use Israel and um, the Zionist ideology as as a tool to achieve power over the old Anglo-Saxon elite inside the United States. The U.S. Has, has been an empire long before the Zionists became relevant here. The always Jews and Zionists are different things. There was always a pretty strong influence of, of, of Jews in the United States and at key moments in history that was clearly shown during the um, even as early as the Russian-Japanese War. U.S. banks played a key role in the Bolshevik Revolution, etc. But it still was primarily an Anglo um, or elite. And I think that elite has been gradually replaced by another one, which is not necessarily ethnically Jewish, but uses uh, messianic ideology, a mix of, of, of Zionist uh, Judaic ideology, and actually a uniquely American uh, form of Protestant Christian quote-unquote Christian, uh, messianic ideology, you know, the city of the hill, indispensable nation, etc. They marry each other very nicely together, and they use uh, basically two arguments. One is this entire Zionist issue. If you want to, if you allow me, I'll explain in a couple of words why this is so important, that term, because people always say, well, Zionism is just a national movement for Jews and, and the Jewish culture, and they have their own homeland. Look what happened to them in history and during World War II, don't they deserve to have a place where they're safe? That idea, however, has a very disturbing assumption, 
which is that Jews are inherently threatened by all non-Jews worldwide. That's why the state of Israel is the state of all Jews. It's not the state of the Israelis. It's the, it's the state, officially, by its own definition, is the state of all Jews on the planet. That's why a guy you know, born in Brooklyn has more rights there than a guy born in downtown Jerusalem, if he's Palestinian. If Once you accept that notion that Jews are threatened by non-Jews worldwide by some mysterious disease called anti-Semitism, which has no cause, no explanation, but can rear its head at any moment, you have to then take the measures to protect them, not only in Israel, but worldwide. Hence, you have the perfect tool to force the establishment of specific world order. That's the catch. The catch is, it's a pretext, it's, uh, Israel Shahak said a wonderful thing, he said that Israeli policies are, you know, think locally and act globally. And that's really what's happening. Uh, that entire Zionist argument is a pretext. It's not really a concern for the well-being of the people of Israel, neither Jews nor Palestinians. It's a national tool to seize power inside the United States by using the tremendous resources and financial capabilities and political power of the Jewish uh, community in the United States. And it's a worldwide tool to impose an order which, but because who better, who besides the United States can guarantee that, you know, no uh, anti-Semitic regime will ever rear its head up anywhere? Of course, the U.S. There you got it. You've got a, a basically a rationalization for worldwide hegemony. And worldwide hegemony for whom? For what I think are not people who belong to a specific nationality. I think we're talking about here would almost be a Marxist and say a class consciousness. Basically, big money, big American money, or big actually even international money is the, probably the best way of, of saying it. It's not, there is not a, there's no boardroom where the leaders of the hegemony or the empire meet and take you know, decisions and there's a list of these guys. It's much more of a, of a ruling class. Like the Soviet Union had the nomenclatura, which was basically the real power behind the Central Committee and the KGB and the Armed Forces. At the end of the day, it was this fairly large group of people. You have a similar construction in the, the, the Anglo-Zionist Empire. You have a mix of people which, with different ethnic backgrounds, quite a, quite a lot of them Jews, but by far not all. And the reverse is not true. It doesn't mean that most Jews actually uh, endorse or even are aware of what's going on. And these people, world, they want world domination because basically they think that they're the best. It's exceptionalism. And that is something that exists very strongly in the Western culture for at least a thousand years. Uh, we've seen that in, a, in many manifestations, ranging from the papacy to racist theories. It's Western exceptionalism married with Jewish exceptionalism as defended by rabbinical teachings in, in, uh, in uh, Pharisaic, uh, you know, rabbinical Judaism. And in the Zionist ideology, which is a secular war originally. These two things marry each other together very well, and they result in the people considering themselves superhumans, having the either God-given right or history-given right or the mission, you know, Kipling's white man's burden, etc., to rule the planet. That's what's at the core of it. Which brings us right back to what uh, you wrote that I mentioned before, Quote, there cannot be a one-world hegemon and a multipolar world order regulated by international law. It's an either-or situation. So what you have just described is Zionism being used as part of this one-world hegemon. What is needed is some justification for exceptionalism. It just happens that nowadays Zionism 
and the Israeli firsters and, you know, the neocons happen to be, you know, the thing of the day. But it's not inherently different from other forms of exceptionalism that the West, I mean, uh, the, the, the papacy has had that kind of exceptionalism since the Middle Ages. I mean, they had a treaty called the Treaty of Tordesillas where they split, actually, they actually the Pope split the planet between the Portuguese and I think the Spanish, if I remember correctly, and said, you know, we're going to split up the planet. And then you have European colonialism, and, and that's another form of exceptionalism. Again, Kipling with his white man's burden. And then we had the Nazis who are saying, you know, we are racially, because, you know, nationalism and racial theories were the thing of the 19th and then early 20th century, so they took that and said, again, it's all exceptionalism. It doesn't really matter what the ideology is. It is an ideology which says that there are some people that are more equal than others. That's the crucial thing. That's why we will not abide by international law. That's why we will not negotiate. That's why there's one set of rules for the poor and another set of rules for the big and mighty. All it is is exceptionalism. The, 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 the actual camouflage of the day of that exceptionalism really is not that crucial, I think. Saker, thank you so much. It is my pleasure, always. I've been speaking with the Saker. Today's show has been Superpower Confrontation in Syria. It's not over. The Saker is an expert in military analysis, intelligence issues, Russian geopolitics, and traditional Christian orthodoxy. He was born in a military family of white Russian refugees in Western Europe, where he lived most of his life. He worked as a military analyst in Europe until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. He has been blogging since 2007 as The Saker. He is the author of The Essential Saker, From the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World, and his latest, The Essential Saker 2. Visit thesaker.is. That's the S-A-K-E-R dot I-S. I-S stands for Iceland. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yarol Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me?